This is The Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Welcome to the Hindu On Books podcast as we discuss former Foreign Secretary Vijay Gokhale's book, Tiananmen Square, The Making of a Protest with the author himself. Now, the scene is June 4th, 1989, 32 years ago. And I'm going to read a bit from the book. I recall being woken by noise of armor moving down the avenue of eternal peace. It was 5 a.m. on 4th June. I counted at least 15 tanks, several armored personal carriers, and troop trucks sweeping down the avenue. The man-made barriers were no match for battle tanks. They were simply crushed or pushed aside. Citizens ran for cover. Helicopters hovered above the moving columns. There were reports of automatic weapon fire in other parts of the city, as foreign media were claiming that the army had fired into crowds with several hundred casualties. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Gokhale. And I'd just like to start by asking you to set the scene for us, really. From this period, 32 years ago, it's very clear you were there right in the middle of it. But you also make it very clear in your book that while the truth was clearly not what the Chinese government tried to put out, it was also not what we were hearing from what you say was the Western media over there. So tell us a bit about just what you saw. Thank you, Suhasini. Thank you for inviting me to this podcast. Uh, in 1989, I was still in my 20s. I had left university uh, just a few years ago. And for my, my wife and me, this was therefore perhaps the first major event of global importance, which we were witnessing firsthand. So you can well imagine how exciting a time it was uh, for somebody like me. Um, and uh, it was uh, an experience that was to remain in my memory uh, right through these 32 years, strong enough so that I wanted to write about it. Uh, China had been in many ways a mystery for all of us Indians because it was a closed society for a long, long time. And it had just begun to open up around the time that I reached Beijing in early 1988. So the city of Beijing and China as a country were very different from what it is today. Uh, it was in some senses less developed than many Indian cities with all the attendant problems of shortages, power cuts, and so on. But there was a lot of hope because China had emerged out of the devastation of the Cultural Revolution after 1976 and had seen a very substantial level of stability as well as economic growth. And there was therefore, on the one hand, hope in the population that things were going to get better. But on the other hand, there were concerns because the reforms also meant a dismantling of many of the systems they had grown comfortable with. Free housing, for instance, subsidized food, the certainty of a job, and so on. So it was in this milieu that uh, the Tiananmen incident took place. Right. And I felt it was necessary to write about it for two reasons, Sohasini. One, because 
there was no Indian perspective, at least that I am aware of, about this seminal event in Chinese recent history. There are a number of Western accounts and a number of Chinese accounts, including accounts of some of the student leaders who are now in exile, as well as, of course, the official Chinese account. But I don't recall any other Indian citizen uh, writing about this. And I felt that an Indian perspective was important. That was the first uh, reason I wrote. The second reason I wrote was that the same party continues to be in power in China today. The players have changed, but the play is the same. And therefore, I felt that as Indians uh, who were just on the other side of the border, it was important to know what happened in China at that time. Because if we don't know what happened at that time, you really can't make sense of what is happening today. So essentially, these are the reasons I wrote the book Sohasini. And I hope the readers will read it and, and like it. And certainly, and you've really built it up through the book. Uh, the first part is, of course, the players themselves, no one larger on the scene than Deng Xiaoping at the time. Uh, and then you have talked about the days leading up to June 4th. Uh, the spark that you talk about was the death of Deng Xiaoping's most you know, uh, closest colleague, Hu Yaobang, who was part of, in fact, was seen as, was credited with the reforms that you just spoke about. So how did it happen that people coming for, fun- for the funeral really turned into protesters and as many as half a million people perhaps in Tiananmen Square? That was an interesting story, uh, Suhasini, because while Hu Yaobang was the hand-picked successor of Deng Xiaoping, and he had done a stellar job in rehabilitating the party cadre, the party rank and file, which had suffered during the Cultural Revolution, including some of the top leadership, and had brought back political stability, a certain political order, a certain political system back into the Communist Party. On the other hand, perhaps some of his political moves were a little too reformist or liberal for the leadership of the party, including Deng Xiaoping. Deng himself was a communist, as was the top leadership of the party. These were leaders who had fought in the revolution, who had struggled through many, many years of civil war with the nationalist rulers of China, the Kuomintang or the KMT. And therefore, they were not about to let their own political power and the dominance of the Communist Party might be diluted by political reform. And perhaps there was a growing feeling that the direction in which Hu Yaobang was going by 1985 or 1986 might lead to just that. For this reason, in 1987, when the student demonstrations first took place, the responsibility was placed upon Hu Yaobang. The leadership felt that perhaps he had been a little too liberal. And as a result, of course, he lost his job. However, the student community obviously was therefore sympathetic to him because when they had begun their protests in 1987, Hu Yaobang appeared to be somebody who sympathized with them, empathized with their condition and so on. Therefore, it was only natural that when he suddenly died of a heart attack in Uh, in in April of 1989, 
there would be a, a, an overwhelming sense of sympathy. And therefore, the first student outpourings were outpourings of sympathy, sympathy for this man, for this leader, for this fallen leader. They were in no way a protest against the regime, much less an attempt to uh, overthrow it. And uh, therefore, I think the very start uh, of this protest itself was misread by the leadership. And subsequently, of course, it snowballed. And that is the story that I tell in this book. Right. And, and this protest, as you said, was a seminal moment for China. But we've seen protests around the world and how they suddenly turned, particularly uh, because of the reaction of the leadership. In other words, that is actually the more uh, defining uh, action, the reaction of the leadership at the time. And of course, Yang Xiaoping never really uh, regretted what had happened at Tiananmen Square. Uh, but what is the closest estimate of how you, uh, you think things played out? Because of course, in the West, this is still called the Tiananmen Massacre. Uh, in your book, you write again and again, there is no real account of just how many people may have died. There was, of course, the UK ambassador's words that only, I think, were released in 2017, that uh, as many as, as, as 10,000 people may have uh, been killed. Um, and then there was what you saw. Uh, I, I know that somebody in the embassy uh, was grazed in, in sni sniper fire as well. So what is your sense of what actually happened in terms of the violence there? Uh, Suhasini, we might probably never know the actual casualty figures because the Chinese state has put a blanket on the on the facts. Right. They said 200 uh, there has died. Been a, there has been a cover-up. Yes, their official figure, I think, is two to 300. That includes, of course, uh, the security forces. Right. Uh, but but that is, is clearly not a figure which is tenable. On the other hand, the narrative that the West has woven over time about thousands dying inside the square as well as outside the square also do not uh, uh, are not supported by evidence and facts. Uh, on the contrary, even the student leaders themselves who subsequently wrote or spoke about this event once they went into exile in the West, in the United States and Australia and Canada and so on, have themselves averred that inside the square, there were probably no casualties or a very small number of casualties because the large majority of students had already vacated the square by the early morning of the 4th of June. Now, I do, however, say that there were casualties in the city uh, for two reasons. One, because um, we have eyewitness accounts uh, about such casualties, uh, including one eyewitness account by an Indian media person, the Press Trust of India's correspondent, uh, who was present in the square on the evening of the 3rd of June, and who subsequently told some of us in the embassy that a Chinese bystander standing next to him had dropped dead, uh, obviously of a gunshot wound. And there were several other such anecdotal uh, accounts that we heard from other media persons. I did not deliberately include this in the book because I felt that anecdotal evidence of this nature doesn't necessarily translate into a massacre. Uh, that is uh, the definition of a massacre as in the Oxford Dictionary where a very substantially large number of people who are willfully killed by the state. Right. Uh, therefore, I think that I had to balance between uh, 
mentioning that there were casualties and these must have been a large number, but uh, uh, discounting the possibility that they were in the thousands because there is no evidence to support this. Support that. And However, I think the main point I wanted to make in the book, Suhasini, beyond the actual number of casualties was the fact that the Chinese have suppressed any real account of the entire incident, not just of what happened on the 4th of June, but from what happened from the 15th of April all the way down to the 4th of June. And they have done so by essentially declaring this to be a life and death struggle for the party, by suggesting that a handful of people wanted to overthrow the Communist Party, wanted to overthrow Chinese socialism, and that the government's response was just that. It was a response. It was not an initiative. And they believe they took appropriate measures as a counter response to what was an act of lawlessness. Now, this, of course, also does not square with the facts, does not square with what we saw happening in those days. So in my opinion, there was a cover-up. There has been a cover-up by the Chinese side on the one hand. And I think there has been a certain slant to the narrative given by the West on the other. And I hope that uh, my book gives a third perspective. Obviously, uh, as an individual, my view is also a subjective one. But India and Indians did not have a dog in this fight. We were not ideologically oriented one way or the other. So I think perhaps that my account may be a little more objective, but I leave that to your readers to decide. Right. And it, it certainly gives day-by-day, blow-by-blow accounts of a lot of the events around that time. You mentioned some of the uh, student leaders who have spoken uh, uh, since then. And of course, you know, for the world, it is that one picture of the man known as Tank Man. I don't think he was ever identified who stood in front of a column of tanks and kept moving every time they tried to move their direction um, to try and stop them. Uh, In your book, you have a very interesting epilogue that deals with what happened to so many of the characters. You speak about, for example, uh, Fang Lishi, uh, who uh, stayed at the U.S. Embassy, I think, for an entire year before uh, they were able to get out and, and go to the U.S. There was, of course, uh, the, 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 the tragic end of uh, Lu Xiaobo, who was in uh, jail uh, nearly until his death a few years ago. Um, there were people like the Uyghur leader, um, uh, Bur Kaishi, who stayed on in Taipei. And I think you had a chance, a chance meeting with him. My, my question really is, what happened to that generation of students today? Where are they today? Do they still feel that spark of, of rebellion, of a desire for more democracy? Uh, so Asini, one of the points I make in the book is that I think we... Uh, all made uh, a mistake by looking at the student protests of 1989 as a democratic movement in the way that we would look at this in the West or in any other democratic country, including ours. Uh, Yes, these protests in a way did reflect the sentiments that the students felt. But in the most part, these were their immediate concerns, jobs, the economy, the prices, uh, a place to stay, and so on. The usual problems that any youth in any country face once they leave university. 
And uh, this, the economic situation in 1988 and 1989 did not augur well for the students, for those who were about to enter the job market. So in a sense, it was broadly that sense of dissatisfaction which got channelized into a movement uh, by the death of Huyaba. Uh, now, I'm not denying the fact that there were amongst these students as well as intellectuals and intelligentsia, which also aspired for democratic ideals, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, and so on. But these were not the guiding motivations as the West would have wanted to portray. I think this is important. Now, if you look at today, uh, uh, Suhasini, 30 years on, uh, China has seen phenomenal change. In fact, in a generation, it has moved from being uh, a third world country to close to being a first world country. And it has uh, uplifted more people from poverty than perhaps any time in recent human history. Yeah. Uh, so the student community of today, I believe, which is generally happy with its lot because uh, there is a, a very good chance of employment, of uh, economic opportunity, of rising incomes, of rising standards of living, of improving quality of life, which is what uh, every citizenry looks from its government. And therefore, I feel that at this stage, the conditions for a protest do not seem to exist. Right. As far as the student leaders in exile are concerned, Suhasini, this was, to my mind, uh, on the part of the Chinese leadership, nothing short of political genius. If you recall, uh, during the period of the Soviet Union, the refusal of the Soviets to allow their political dissidents and prisoners to go abroad, whether it was Solzhenitsyn, whether it was Anatoly Sharansky, whether it was anybody else, became a stick with which to beat the Soviet Union abroad. Uh, a pressure point, a stick. Now, what the Chinese did was masterful. Once their prison sentences were over, the vast majority were simply allowed to go into exile. By doing so, they firstly uh, completely neutralized the possibility the West could use this to beat them over the heads with. And secondly, they rendered the student leaders or the erstwhile leaders of the movement basically powerless because Ultimately, as the Indian independence movement displayed, the leaders who finally succeeded were those who led from within, not those who lived outside. Uh, and therefore, by sending them abroad, you cut their ties to the people. So in that sense, they are just middle-aged student exiles who now write or speak about what China might have been, but have no real influence in China today. Interesting. One of the other points in the book, and, and there are so many parts about China that one can learn from your book on, and I, I, I and, and I hope future books as well, um, is the divisions within the CCP. The idea that uh, that the Chinese Communist Party was pulling in different directions, and that in fact the June fourth action um, in Tiananmen, uh, the June 3rd, June 4th, uh, action only came once Deng Xiaoping felt that he had sealed over the cracks or, or papered over uh, some of the differences between people. Uh, in a sense, uh, there was also the larger specter in front of them of Soviet Russia and, and how uh, it had fallen apart after 
the announcement of things like Glasnost and Perestroika. So um, do you think, in a sense, that these divisions within the party and the fact that they had to be uh, they had to be bridged before any decisive action could happen was, in fact, uh, one of the distinguishing features of the time? Uh, so, Suhasini, uh, you know, I think uh, the average Indian citizen has many myths about China. And one of the reasons I wrote this book was to explain uh, some of that some of these myths are not necessarily factually correct and to write the book in such a way that an average Indian uh, who may not have a deep knowledge of China but wanted to know something of China could read in language which was relatively simple. I hope I have achieved that. Now, one of the myths that I do try to address in the book is the sense among Indians that the Communist Party is a monolith. Here is this party led by one powerful leader which calls who calls the shots and all the 1.4 billion Chinese march as the uh, children marched to the Pied Piper of Hamelin. In fact, uh, the history of the Communist Party of China will show that more often than not, there was severe factionalism within the party. There were, of course, instances where there was a dominant leader for a while, Mao Zedong, for instance, Deng Xiaoping, currently Xi Jinping. But there were large periods, even during their times, when there was factionalism and rivalry within the party. It's just that uh, because the communist system is a closed system, because there is no free press, because there is no freedom of expression and so on, we don't get to see it. So uh, uh, to a large extent, uh, the Tiananmen incident, while at one level it is a story about dissatisfaction among the students and the intelligentsia about life in general and the economy in particular, at a second level it is in fact a struggle for power within the party uh, between uh, the General Secretary Chao Ziyang and the conservative. So it is a struggle between the more liberal wing and the more conservative faction of the party. Uh, the only thing was that it spilled out into the open. And that was a mistake the party made. Therefore, the party had to first close ranks before they could take action. And therefore, it took almost two weeks after the declaration of martial law on the 20th of May for that closing of ranks to take place. And I describe, I, I sort of narrate how uh, Deng Xiaoping, who was a master strategist, was able to gradually close ranks. What specific policy measures, actions, uh, uh, his confabulations with other people in the leadership, his willingness to show flexibility and compromise. He had to display a lot of political acuity and a great deal of political uh, uh, deftness, I would say, right. to knit together that unity so that action could be taken on the 3rd of June. And this is where I do feel that the Western media, uh, instead of recognizing the process that was going on, and there were enough signs of that, chose to interpret this as uh, a sense, uh, uh, as if there was going to be further struggle within the party and that, you know, the party was going to fall apart. And uh, nothing of that kind was going on. So uh, I think this is a, one of the things I would like to convey through my book, that we must look at China not as a monolith, but as a very faction-ridden system. And therefore, assuming that because Xi Jinping is in, in charge today, 
that means china marches unitedly and the party is united on every single one of his policies to my mind would be a mistake we have to watch for signs of potential rift and potential trouble and see how that plays out in china of today so that's 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 a very interesting point because when people look back at tiananmen square and we look now at xi jinping in power um do you see other uh, areas where there could be something to learn from how china dealt with that period and how china is dealing with uh, increasing criticism internationally today i'll i'll tell you why i ask this because after tiananmen square you called it a seminal event but in a sense it seemed as if after all the outrage over what the west saw as a massacre we actually saw a period of very very strong economic growth and and trade relations with the world and economic relations with the world china's own economic growth uh, went i think from uh, 500 billion dollar uh, gdp to 14 trillion uh, uh, we saw you know the world really take china into the wto make it a part of the multilateral leadership discourse um do you at this point see any similarities between today 30 years later and that period there is one fundamental similarity but there are differences because 30 years as i said has made a huge difference in terms of the chinese economy uh, the similarity is that both deng xiaoping and xi jinping share the same vision that is the vision that china must be led by the communist party and that the authority and dominance of the party in political terms must not be allowed to be diluted this is a common view and there is no difference between dang and xi on this matter of course because of the economic progress that china has achieved since then uh, there are obvious differences because of china's capabilities these have grown substantially today uh, therefore Uh, as a result of that the west which looked upon china as a sort of cash cow in 1990 now sees china as a bit of a carnivore uh, waiting to devour them uh, because the fact is that china is not only the world's second largest economy now but it is also technologically uh, more advanced and in some ways a true challenger to the west to the west's domination of technology of equipment of manufacturing and so on uh, therefore i think uh, the the uh, the west therefore looks on china very differently today than it did uh, in 1990 uh, some of the methods of course that the current president uses are also different from those that dang used again this is the reason this is because of circumstances in 1990 china was economically weak it didn't have the political or the diplomatic heft that it has its military was much weaker and therefore deng xiaoping uh, spoke of keeping uh, of lying low and not raising your head uh, and waiting and watching and biding your time uh, today china's economy is the second largest in the world it is the world's largest foreign investor it is the world's second or third most powerful armed force it has a, a huge diplomatic influence abroad and therefore the new policy is one where china is beginning to assert itself to assert its interests to preserve its interests abroad and if required to intervene 
uh, including through military means, as we see in the South China Sea, in the pursuit of those interests. So that's why I say that while there is a certain core similarity between them and Xi in terms of politics, uh, there is a difference in style because the means uh, available to Xi Jinping are much greater uh, than they were to them. It's interesting you say that because on the other hand, it would seem he is, uh, Xi Jinping faces much greater challenges in terms of, uh, so, the, you know, Tiananmen Square was essentially, uh, uh, you know, Han Chinese in 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 uh, in uh, uh, the capital. So it was much more visible. Uh, but we do see the kind of challenges uh, um, President Xi faces in Xinjiang, for example, uh, even uh, in Tibet, even now. Uh, the Hong Kong de democracy protests as well. Uh, do you think that his, uh, while you say that there is this similarity in how they saw the role of the Chinese Communist Party and that the status quo must be maintained there, uh, do you think that his way is in, in fact even more authoritarian than perhaps how the Chinese leadership of that time was seen? I would... Uh sort of hold my views in this regard, uh, Suhasini, because I don't think we have uh, yet studied this in any great detail. But when you talk of uh, Tibet, for instance, uh, I do want to mention that in 1989, just a few months before the Tiananmen incident, there was a huge uprising in Lhasa and in some of the other Tibetan cities. Uh, that was the 30th anniversary of His Holiness the Dalai Lama's uh, flight to India. And it was very brutally put down by Deng Xiaoping. Uh, therefore, when it comes to uh, the pacification of the minorities and of the, the, the borderlands, uh, I think there is almost nothing to choose between Mao, Deng and Xi. Uh, it is an extremely Han-dominated society where uh, there is no great freedom or any great uh, willingness to accept diversity of the non-Han population. With, uh, so far as other uh, policies of uh, Xi Jinping are concerned, and here the much more recent one you refer to is Hong Kong, uh, I think that is an interesting phenomenon. Uh, I believe that Deng uh, did the basic agreement allowing for autonomy of Hong Kong for 50 years for two reasons. One, because he still needed Great Britain and the West for his economic reforms, for the investment and technology that would come. And he saw no reason to disrupt this process uh, simply because uh, uh, Hong Kong should merge back with China. I think he had no doubt that Hong Kong had no option in the long run. And that therefore there was no need to display anxiety. And I think that was a mature way of looking at things. This time around, the protests are of concern to Xi Jinping because unlike in 1989, when the 50-year time frame meant that those in their 20s and 30s were reasonably sure that during their lifetime, their lifestyles would not change, those who are in their 20s or 30s today recognize that by the time they reach their 50s, that 50-year period where Deng and Margaret Thatcher agreed there would be no change in Hong Kong would be over. So I would put, if I put myself in the shoes of a young Hong Konger, 
I would in any case be concerned about what the future holds for me after 2049. Uh, however, in my or rather after 2047. Uh, however, I think the response of the Chinese government, uh, the haste with which they are proceeding, uh, the determination to completely crush any kind of dissent or freedom of expression, even within limits, might not perhaps be the wisest course of action. We have to see how this plays out. Uh, it will play out badly in Taiwan. But my concern is, uh, has the Chinese leadership reached the view that a reunification of Taiwan by peaceful means may no longer be possible, and therefore they may have to contemplate some kind of military or forceful action? If that conclusion has already been reached in Beijing, then what they're doing in Hong Kong, to my mind, makes perfect sense. Because then they're not looking to set up Hong Kong as an example for Taiwan, which is what Deng Xiaoping did with his one country, two systems. Right. So, in, in fact, we might be seeing uh, the course being set for much more because, you know, it's not just the world. India has been concerned by China's actions in the last year. One more comparison I want to make, and it, it comes because your book actually evokes many thoughts. Uh, and one of the things is uh, the idea that what was happening in China 32 years ago, in a sense, the, the relationship between the state and its people, how much protest was being allowed, as you pointed out, uh, the protesters weren't even necessarily pushing for democracy. One of their big, uh, uh, one of their big uh, demands or the top demand was just the withdrawal of a people's daily editorial that had portrayed them as anti-national. Um, so I, I, I want to set it in today's situation. We have a one year now of the coronavirus pandemic, more than a year now of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, in a sense, we saw China move to quell any kind of uh, stories, uh, whitewash what had happened in Wuhan, very much in a similar way to uh, how you have described Tiananmen was kind of just glossed over, airbrushed completely. Um, do you think somewhere there internally, China could go through another kind of uh, protest over coronavirus and what we have seen uh, it do around the world, make China unpopular around the world, the consistent need to uh, shut down any kind of information going out of there? I think there was a time, Suhasini, in February and March of 2020, when the manner in which the coronavirus epidemic overwhelmed China that the leadership of the party feared the possibility of everything coming unstuck. And we saw statements from the end of February right through to the end of May last year, talking about the need for unity, the need for order, the need for ensuring stability, the warnings to the Chinese people that if stability was sacrificed, it would mean that their lives would be fundamentally impacted in a very adverse way that what they had worked for and strived for for 30 or more years would all be gone. Uh, and I think that these uh, uh, appeals that were made exhibited an underlying concern that uh, the unhappiness with the way in which the administration had dealt with the coronavirus uh, or the lack of information that they were putting out might spill over into student demonstrations. 
uh, you know, uh, in China, the, there has always been a great fear of the students in particular, and this is not limited only to communist China. Uh, the Chinese student movements have been very powerful both during the Qing Empire and then during the period of nationalist China from 1911 to 1947 49 as well, including the so-called May 4th, 1919 movement, which is in a sense the gold standard for student nationalism and student movements in China. So yes, I do think that between February and May 2020, there was a time when the Chinese leadership uh, would have been concerned. However, the manner in which the leadership has subsequently been able to deal with the situation, uh, brutally at times, of course, but uh, in, in, in the sense of uh, eradicating the virus uh, or certainly containing it so that life has more or less resumed as normal in China today and without it significantly impacting the economy beyond the first quarter of 2020, when China saw a negative growth, but from June 2020 itself, it bounced back. It finished the year much better than any global economy. And this year it is poised to reach eight or nine, uh, six or 7% or even 8%. So I would think that provided the Chinese can maintain that economic growth and can provide reassurance to the people that their lives will continue to go on as normal, it will continue, they will continue to draw the benefit of stability, of economic progress and so on. The likelihood of any kind of political unrest is uh, very remote. Now, of course, China is a closed society. It's not like ours. So you, it is difficult to read what happens inside China, even at the best of times. And in fact, Tiananmen is a wonderful opportunity for all of us as Indians to understand how China operates because for those for that tiny fraction of a period, we all got, uh, uh, I mean, all the windows were open and we could look inside. But uh, I would say that because it's a closed system, making any sort of prediction would be difficult. But let me say that I don't think unless the situation becomes catastrophic again, uh, that there is any great threat at the moment of uh, an upheaval. Now, having said that, of course, in the last week or so, uh, we have seen a resurgence of the virus in both Taiwan and Singapore. Now, again, these are highly regulated societies. Both of them, one is an island state, the other is a city state. Uh, and therefore, uh, the fact that the virus has, despite all the containment measures, revived or you know, become resurgent, uh, means we cannot rule out this situation in China. Uh, and therefore, I think the next six months will be crucial. Uh, I saw some figures suggesting that China had actually vaccinated about half its population, adult population by now. Uh, that is generally considered the tipping point. In a sense, uh, uh, any country which has vaccinated half or more of its adult population has seen significant fall in both fatalities and infections. Uh, but nonetheless, I think let's keep an eye out for the next three to four months. My sense is if by October or so, by the time the National Day on 1st of October comes around, if there is no major outbreak of infection, uh, we might say that China has escaped the worst. All right. In fact, there is more of a discussion in uh, the chapter on doubling down on just what the challenges and possibility the strengths of the current uh, Chinese leadership 
have. Uh, it brings me to my final thought, really. Has uh, Tiananmen, and you know, we're of course looking at a very, very uh, long period of 32 years when so much has happened in China and so much has happened in India. But has uh, has the way China deals with India changed in these 32 years? And I want to put it in that historical context. Tiananmen, uh, uh, the incident came just after a visit by Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi. The Sundarang Chu standoff was continuing. It began in 87 and continued for several years after. Um, but China did move towards the uh, the principles of peaceful coexistence and, and working as uh, the, uh, the agreement uh, uh, on uh, the line of actual control with India uh, that followed at that time. At, at the present moment, it seems as if China's aggression with India is not abating. Uh, that in a sense, even though China has come through this year and the COVID uh, situation and uh, the kind of criticism it faces from the West, whether it is on human rights, whether it is on its economic aggression, uh, whether it is on uh, what it's doing in the South China Sea or at the line of actual control. China doesn't seem to be moving towards a more conciliatory position. Uh, do you think the way China deals with India has changed in these 32 years? I uh, I definitely think so, Suhasini. Uh, uh, but this is part of the larger change of Chinese foreign policy. Uh, uh, a new confidence, some might even say uh, a false sense of confidence, which has come into China that uh, it is fated to rise and rise, and the West is fated to fall and fall. And this has been further reinforced, this sort of thinking, uh, by the whole COVID pandemic. Uh, and therefore, the new saying in China is uh, which is the East is rising and the West is falling. Now, uh, this sort of mindset then uh, is interesting because this strong external confidence that China is rising is still combined with an internal paranoia, an internal paranoia about the sustainability of the Communist Party in China. Now, the Chinese leadership, of course, likes to say that it is the West, particularly the United States, which is subverting the Chinese. But in their heart and in their internal deliberations, some of which we get to know because of the uh, expressions they use in their publicity and in their propaganda, it is very clear that their real fear is the internal situation. And therefore, I think they are conflicted between calling themselves a great power externally and yet having an almost paranoid sense about uh, uh, possible subversion from outside. And therefore, my characterization of China is that of a paranoid great power. Now, in this situation, uh, any country which doesn't uh, which in their view doesn't align with them, uh, is one which is potentially a threat to them. And in this, it is, I think, increasingly in this category that India falls. And now India, of course, is a, a major power in its own right. Uh, we have a relatively autonomous foreign policy. We have friends all, all over the place. And we would like to be friends with China as well. But there are certain policies we have not aligned to. Uh, for instance, Belt and Road, uh, 
you know the reasons for that. Uh, uh, they, they, they have violated our sovereignty, Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, a number of other policies as well, like the community for the shared future of mankind. This woolly-headed concept that the, the Chinese have, uh, which they say is different from the Cold War system of alliances, although there's really nothing concrete about it. Now, uh, of course, our not aligning with these are part of our autonomous position, but the Chinese don't see it that way. And therefore, I fear that uh, there has been a certain misreading of Indian intentions by the Chinese side. In the short term, of course, uh, what has been happening in the last few years may look somewhat concerning for us. But look at it from the long term, Suhasini. India is also rising, not as fast as China, perhaps for the moment, but it is still rising. Is it in China's national interest to create an adversary of a country which is not only a neighbor, but which is also going to share a bigger uh, uh, the stage with, with China in the future in a bigger manner than it has in the past. Uh, to my mind, uh, this doesn't make sense. Uh, I hope that the Chinese side come to their senses soon enough. Uh, but I think that in the interim, we are in for a difficult ride. And uh, uh, I believe that, uh, subs- that you know, uh, gov- uh, government since the year 2000 uh, in India have been dealing with this issue. It is becoming increasingly complex. I think that more or less all governments have followed the same policy, engage with China, but, but take necessary measures to defend yourself if required. And I think that is the way that any government that is in India will have to go forward. And um, of course, history is replete with examples of regimes or countries that have not necessarily done what is in their own best interest. Uh, This has been a fascinating discussion. It's a great book. Uh, I know that there are more to follow. uh, And I hope to have you back on our show to discuss um, uh, to discuss particularly China and all the changes. As you said, it's a very important issue given that we do have these large populations with a very long boundary between them uh, living as neighbors. And the future of the world might actually depend on how these two neighbors engage or understand each other. Vijay Gokhale, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Swasini. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And to our listeners and our readers, thanks again for coming in on the Hindus on Books podcast. Thank you for listening to the Hindu on Books. You can now find the Hindus podcast such as InFocus and Parley on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at SOCMED4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in. 